0: read our sermon passage together this morning. You can grab your Bibles, I do hope you have one, and turn to Psalm 126 if you don't have a Bible with you. It is always useful and profitable to have a Bible open in front of you as as we study God's Word together. So you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, maybe even in front of you, and you'll find our text this morning on page 517. For almost two months now, we've been slowly but surely walking through what Is found at the back end of the Psalter, known as the Psalms of Ascent, and we come to the seventh one this morning, Psalm 126. So let me read its six verses for us, and then pray that God would bless our study, and we'll begin together. So here now, as God speaks to you once again through His perfect and powerful Word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. But those who sow in tears, they shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do gather on this day, needing the joy of your spirit. We know it's your joy that is our strength. And so send your spirit into our hearts to open our eyes, to open our minds and our very souls to the truth of this word, that you might increase our affection for you, that you might fix our attention on Jesus Christ, who is our life. And we pray all of these things in His precious name. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) A few years ago, I had the delight to visit a church that, not terribly long ago, was, for a brief moment in church history, one of the most famous churches in the English-speaking world. And it was famous in part because of its prayer ministry. It was only a few months after the church actually began, that the new pastor of that church called for a weekly prayer meeting on Thursday nights. And so this church of oh, roughly about 1,100 souls would find over 800 people gathering every Thursday evening to pray. And the prayer meeting every single week would start like prayer meetings usually did back then. You would have the pastor, he would come to the front of the room and he would pick a passage of scripture. and He would read it and then give very brief comments and exhortations. Uh, related to that night of prayer from that passage, and then the people would begin to pray. And after, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 minutes, maybe when some of the prayers just died down, and he was hearing the need for kind of fresh energy in the room, he would come back up. But this time, he wouldn't read a passage of Scripture, nor would he call for a psalm or a hymn to be sung. He, w- he would almost always read a story from church history. A story from church history that focused on revival. This surprising and sovereign work of God that brings life from death, joy from sorrow, and hope from anguish. And so they would then begin to pray for the same in their church that God would do it again. And it's not terribly surprising that only a few years later, one of the more famous revivals in the 19th century broke out in this church. Now, you might know in our context today, even in our very county, very few churches ever have a regular prayer meeting. And even the few churches that have a regular prayer meeting, almost no church members ever come to that regular prayer meeting. And then we wonder, don't we, why God's reversing, reviving, and restoring power seems to be absent from among us. So Psalm 126 is going to help us in many ways this morning. It's the seventh psalm in this series of the Psalms of Ascent. Being the seventh psalm, I think there's actual reason for us to expect some degree of goodness and blessedness in the seventh psalm. And it's going to do that as it points us to God's reviving power, the joy that we're to have in His restoring power, requests for more of His restoring power. Even one commentator says it's as good as reading any inspirational revival story from church history, Psalm 126. And I would imagine that for many of you in the room today, if you're like many in our culture today, as the new year begins, perhaps resolutions are on your mind. And those resolutions are a good thing, but maybe I can encourage you this morning to not let your resolutions swallow up your expectations, because oftentimes resolutions are about what you plan to do, whereas expectations, anticipations, those are, for a Christian, more about what You're longing for God to do in your life. So I wonder then, not really what resolutions you have for this new year that has dawned upon us, but what expectations you have for the new year that's dawned upon us. What are you longing for? Is there any prayer that you have that is so urgent and so needful in your life that it feels as though it's written in your prayer journal with blood? I'm asking you really this morning, what are you asking God to restore in your life. Because the simple theme of this passage is found. Kids you may have noticed as I read. In the phrase of verse 1 and 4. that focuses on restored fortunes. It's a psalm about God's reviving power. His redeeming power. His restoring power. And surely as you sit in here today. Again as a new year dawns. You need God to restore something. In your life. Maybe it's. Restored comfort from pain, it's restored joy from sorrow, it's restored holiness from sin, it's restored zeal from apathy and lethargy, or maybe it's simply just restored hope from a year that brought much despair. And so what Psalm 126 is going to do is going to help you in that direction of restoration uh, to look to God with two different eyes of faith. Because the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, find the psalmist looking back to God's work of restoration. And the second stanza, verse 4 through 6, finds him looking forward to God's future restoration. So all I want to do along the way this morning is help you see the two stanzas and those two simple parts. First, praise for God's past restoration. And then secondly, prayer for God's future restoration. So praise for what God has done in the past. Notice again, verse 1. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Now It's a language that almost in the original says something to the degree of when the Lord turned a turning again. And it's a language that throughout the ages of translation has caused many people to think it has a very acute reference to something in Israel's history, namely their return from exile in Babylon. If you think of King Cyrus telling them to go back to Jerusalem, you think of the books maybe of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's why perhaps even you have a translation in front of you I will translate the beginning of verse 1 saying something like when the Lord brought the captives back or when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. But actually the language is much more general. It's not that specific. It's not meant to point us to a very particular time in Israel's history when God restored them from captivity back to Zion as much as it's meant to help us remember that God throughout the life of his people is often, isn't he? So frequently restoring people from captivity to liberty. It simply meant right from the very beginning. It's sounding this great glorious note as Yahweh has done it. And he can do it again. For look at verse 1 as it continues. We were like those who dream. You might be like me. One of those people that never remembers a dream you have. I'm always fascinated by people that can remember in vivid detail their dreams. I am the precise opposite. I mean, as soon as I wake up, it's like my brain presses delete on the details of the dream that I know just woke me up. And I had this happen about eight hours ago. I woke up in the middle of the night around three o'clock and thought that was the most interesting dream. But if you were to ask me right now, what was it about? I would say, I have no idea whatsoever. (laughs) And kids, there are students, you might know some of that feeling, that you wake up and there's this sense of wonder, perhaps even joy, a smile on your face from what a wonderful dream, and you walk downstairs and your parents say, well, what did you dream about? You're like, I don't know, but it was really good. <laughs> or perhaps you have a tangible blessing of God come into your life and you, you lean over to a friend or a spouse perhaps or a family member and you say, pinch me, just to make sure I'm not dreaming. It's almost too good to be true. That's what the psalmist says is happening here with God's past restoration. It's almost too good to be true. We were like those who dream. And that must be an encouragement to many of you because the psalmist clearly understands that the Christian life, walking this life of faith in the Lord's power, it's often one, isn't it? Full of hardship and sorrow. Maybe perhaps your previous months, maybe even previous years have been so full of sorrow and hardship that if God was to restore fortunes in your life, you would almost have to say someone, pinch me, just to make sure I'm not dreaming. That's how good this is. That's how different this is from my experience. You can think of old patriarch Jacob in the book of Genesis. His beloved son Joseph, he thinks has died for decades, mourning the loss of his beloved son. And then his other sons return from Egypt. In Genesis 47, they say, dad, Joseph is alive. And we just saw him. And the text tells us at the end of Genesis chapter 47, he went numb. It was like he was dreaming. But then his spirit was revived. That's the kind of quality that belongs to God's power of restoration. So it moves then, the text does from declaration to celebration. Look at verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. There's a story told of Martin Luther. One day, he had woken up and was studying. and He noticed his beloved wife, Katie, was dressed in black. For the time, it was almost funeral garb. And he said, Katie, why are you wearing that? And she said, well, someone's died. And he said, well, who's died? And She essentially responds, something in your spirit has died by the way you've been acting all of these previous days. Because it was so out of character for this man... Martin Luther, I read a book not too long ago that was about Luther's view of the Christian life and one of the unexpected insights of that book was the degree to which laughter played a part in Luther's life. And so if you turn to Luther's comments even on the psalm before us, at this very point he says this about laughter and the Christian life, we must earnestly endeavor to learn this practice, the joy of laughter. Or at least attain to some knowledge thereof, and we must raise up ourselves with this consideration that the gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. You might have someone ask you before, uh, do you have a good sense of humor? And, of course, they're probably thinking about more worldly tricks and jokes and your ability to laugh at such things. But I ask you today, do you have a gospel sense of humor? When was the last time you laughed at God's restoring power? That he brought liberty to holiness from the captivity of sin? Liberty to joy from the captivity of despair? Liberty to heaven from the captivity of... Of hell. When was the last time a remembrance, a reflection of God's saving power in Jesus Christ put a grin on your face? Perhaps even cause your soul to chuckle that this Savior would save a sinner like you? Laughs, joy. It's not just the wonder of the redeemed. Notice it's a wonder to the watching world. The end of verse 2. Then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. It's possible that at the end of verse 2, it could be that the nations are looking in on what God has done among his people and are so captivated by it that they're responding with faith and repentance. Look what Yahweh has done among his people. But it's probably more likely that they're just giving a simple statement of fact. Look what the Lord has done. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? really doesn't make any sense, but there's no faith or belief in it. It's not unlike what often happens with modern medicinal miracles. Or perhaps a medical staff or a doctor says, It doesn't make any sense. I means miraculous according to the science, but it's incredible, isn't it? That this person's been restored. When Christians say, well, we know exactly why this person has been restored. But you'll notice even the nations in verse 2 underscoring The centrality of God's sovereignty that the Lord has done great things for them. It's not something that they have done themselves. It's not something that they've worked up themselves. It's something that God and God alone could do. And so it almost has this call and response-like function in the psalm where the nations cry out, The Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist answers, notice verse 3, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. You know, this year, I do hope that you make a point to read your Bible carefully, regularly. Perhaps some of you will read through it from Genesis to Revelation for the very first time. Some of you, I know, are wanting to do that this year. So let me set your gaze or fix your sights on something that you want to see along the way as you read God's Word. Notice all of the occasions that when God's people come to the Lord in faith, when they belong to Him in trust and sincerity... Their ordinary experience in time will always be God's restoring power. Uh, they, they know the power that belongs to prison doors flung open, not permanently closed in their face. So you can think, can't you, about Jacob in the book of Genesis, restored to joy that Joseph has actually been brought back from life. You can think about the corporate nation of Israel itself for centuries in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And through the blood of the Passover lamb and through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea, they get across to the dry land. What do they do? They begin to sing about their liberation from captivity. You can think of Mordecai and Esther and the great reversal of that Old Testament story. God saving his people according to his covenant promise. You can get all the way into the New Testament as well. And you get in the book of Acts and you see apostles put in prison. And what happens? Almost always. The prison doors fly open. And they're let loose once again. And what do they do when they get out? They almost always begin to sing God's praises. So verse 3 can end that says, We are glad. I wonder what the Lord has done for you recently. I wonder if you could say, Today, I'm glad in God's restoring power. But the usefulness of this psalm is not just in that he's reflecting, remembering what God has done in the past, but also requesting for more of it. And the future is simply this great rhythm of he's done it and he can do it again. So it moves from praise to prayer for God's future restoration. You notice verse 4 begins that key phrase, restore our fortunes, O Lord. I do hope that you have some old teacher or preacher that ministers to you, perhaps uniquely according to your experience, maybe even your personality. One that can teach you, instruct you, books that you can read, sermons from whom, of whom you can profit. And the Bible says this is a good thing, and Philippians were told to follow the example of those who set forth the apostolic pattern of Christ-likeness. And one person for me that has always done that is this old Welsh preacher in the 20th century that ministered in London. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in 1947, in a forward to a book that was titled Revive Us Again... This book written by Philip Hughes. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said this, There's no subject of which greater importance to the Christian church at the present time can be understood than that of revival. It should be the theme of our constant meditation, preaching, and prayers. It really is two sentences that embody the heart and longing of this psalm at verse 4. Lord, you've revived us before, released us before, reversed the fortunes before, restored us before what? Do it again. And to make sure that we understand the fullness of what he's asking, he, he moves these two metaphors. The first is geographical. Look at the end of verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Yahweh, like streams in the Negev. Uh, kids, I, I don't suppose you know too much. Maybe you do. Maybe you'll surprise me about the Negev. It's in the southern part of Israel. You can picture these scenes of dry, cracked land, like riverbeds, Think like that. Utterly desert dry. But if you know the way that the weather works at this part of the world, during rainy season, a torrential downpours come into these wadi-like areas. And then all of a sudden, what was imminently dry just begins to overflow with stunning power. And when the water gets above the banks, it's so powerful, it just wipe away buses that are on the road. And what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, do that in our hearts because we're dry like the Negev. And so you want to see that when it comes to praying for God's restoration, praying for God's reviving power, it begins, doesn't it, with recognizing you need it? That your heart, your experience, your soul is maybe dry. And some of you maybe are in here today and you know that. You know very acutely that your heart is dry before the Lord. Perhaps it's been dry for a long time. But there might be others of you in the room here today that have no clue. That unrepented sin, your unbelief, has so hardened and calloused your heart. So made it hard before the Lord that you don't even know that you need His restoring grace and power. And what you need then is the Lord to open your eyes to your great need that your heart might be like one of these wadis in the Negev. So he says, fill it up. Restore it in power once again, this geographical metaphor, but it moves into an agricultural one. Notice verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Because the Bible belonged to an agricultural time, you'll find all of these agricultural metaphors all throughout the Bible. And reaping and sowing is a very consistent one. Perhaps the summary statement on reaping and sowing can be found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul is actually warning at this time, God is not mocked. Whatever one reaps, he will sow. But what's amazing about this psalm is it actually flips that summary statement on its head because it essentially says you will not sow what you reap. Notice verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's talk about the spiritual experience of longing for God's restoring power. Because kids, it makes sense, sowing and reaping. I doubt any of you in here are farmers, children. Maybe you long to be farmers. But you know enough about farming, surely, that if you sow corn, what do you reap? Corn. If you sow wheat, what do you reap? Wheat. If you sow beans, what do you reap? Beans. But here, sow tears... And you're not going to get tears, as what the psalmist is telling us. You sow sorrow. You're not going to get more sorrow in God's sovereign promise. What do you get? Great joy before the Lord. One old Puritan called Christians nothing more than evangelical weepers. I wonder what you've wept over recently. Some of you surely have, in recent times, shed tears over perhaps a tragic loss. Maybe it's been tears over a wandering, lost family member or friend. I hope you know what it means to shed tears over your own sin. The good news of what God is telling us in this passage is those who sow in tears. That won't be the end of their harvest. We don't know exactly when God will bring forth this harvest of joy. We don't know the time of the harvest, but you can underscore, can't you, from verse 5 and 6, the promise of harvest. Because look again, here, the promise tense. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. What an amazing, reversing, reviving, restoring promise that God gives His people. That you may have spent previous years weeping, mourning, experiencing great sadness and sorrow. And he's saying, that's not going to be the end of it for you. Perhaps even like a psalm we read earlier, Psalm chapter 30. Your sorrow may only last for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Or perhaps it will be, yes, you're going to get sorrow all throughout 2022. Should the Lord keep you around and tarry? Perhaps in his divine plan, 2023 is going to be the time where you harvest joy. Or perhaps some of you may know it may be the next decade that you reap, or I'm sorry, sow. These tears of sadness and sorrow. And it won't be until the 2030s that you begin to know this joy. But the great promise that belongs to God's people is the guarantee that at some point, sorrow will no longer be your constant companion. That joy will erupt from your heart. That gladness will pour forth from your soul. Why? Because God loves to restore his people. This is praise for God's restoration. I wonder if you're praying for more of that restoring power. So what then might happen to a church, people like us, that know and understand God has this power uh, of restoration? Well, let me give you a couple of things as we begin to close. Uh, A church that knows God's power of restoration, number one, is a people who are joyful. It's so clear, isn't it? Kids, you can go through the passage right now in front of you in your Bible and just circle all the number of times it talks about joy. It reminds me of this old article that a columnist years ago, John Day, wrote in the Baltimore Sun. He was reflecting on just the politicians in Maryland at the time and was remarking about their great solemnity, their intensity, and their gravity. And then he said, you know, they basically all dress like Presbyterians. And some of you might know exactly what he's talking about. You come to a psalm that says, Be still and know that I am God. And you're good with that one. Smile in the midst of your suffering. Actually laugh out loud at the gospel wonder in your life. And some of you might go, I don't know if I've ever really done that before. But those who know God's restoring power are a joyful people. They're ones that know, yes, that suffering comes, but you can smile through the suffering because you have a promise that belongs to you that's totally different than a, Word that belongs to the sinner. For the lot is completely reversed, isn't it? That it's those who are outside of Jesus Christ, this is your best life now, and it's only going to be worse for all eternity. And That's a warning and a terrifying judgment that belongs to you, but for those that have come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, this is the worst it's ever going to be. And then for all eternity, what do you get but nothing but a permanent smile plastered upon your face? Because you see the king and the glory and the fullness of his beauty. And so understanding the Lord's reviving, restoring power in your life right now might mean for some of you today, more often than not, you, you find this look on your face moving from kind of a flat expression to just a smirk. Then as the spirit continues to mature you, that smirk more often than not turns into a grin. And the grin more often than not turns into an ear-to-ear smile. Then that smile, more often than not, it turns into laughter at the amazing things that God continues to do for His people. Don't you want to be among a people that know this kind of joy of the Lord that is your strength? God's restoring power means we're joyful people. Number two, it means we're fruitful people. A fruitful people. He promises a harvest of joy. I'm sure that we could spend every second of the rest of this day without any difficulty whatsoever... Talking about all of the stories in all of our lives. The ways in which we have even now in previous months and years experienced God's power in restoration. And that's going to continue to be that way until Jesus Christ returns. Reaping a, a fruitful harvest of joy from all of these tears that we've sown into the ground. So it's not just is it a joyful people, a fruitful people. But those also who know God's restoring power are a, a hopeful people. People, a hopeful people. Don't forget the promise of verse 5 and 6. It shall turn into joy. And the reason you can be utterly confident that it shall turn into joy is because what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. You remember that his body was sown in the ground in tears, sorrow, and death. And it was three days later that his body was raised again, the first fruits of a final harvest. Of new life, everlasting forgiveness, fullness of rest in God's presence, bliss and joy forever because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And so it's why, even now, through the work of His Spirit and through the ministry of God's people and the comfort of God's Word, what He's always doing us is giving these little glimpses, isn't He, of of heaven here on earth? That when you gather with God's people on the Lord's day, what you should experience is being around a joyful, a fruitful, And a hopeful people. Because those that have come to Jesus Christ. Knows what it means to have experienced God's restoring power. They found liberty from the captivity. Because of what Jesus Christ has done. So joyful, fruitful, hopeful people. Those are those that are found in Jesus Christ. Uh, I hope then this week that you praise God for his restoration. I hope this year that we pray for much more of it in our midst. That we might know his comfort and his promise. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we don't anticipate or even expect you to do great things among us. We do long with the psalmist that this year would be a time in which you would restore our fortunes, that the Spirit's reviving power would flood into our hearts, that we might no longer be dry before you, but that we would overflow with that hope, that faith, that love that is ours in Jesus Christ. Do it so that the nations might also say, look what the Lord has done among them, and let us be glad because of it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.